We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome to this Dog Days of Summer episode 316 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 14, solo flight over the moon and lunar geology. Rosa, who now is on his lonely flight for the next 33 and a third hours around the moon, uh, minding the command ship, minding the store, while Shepard and Mitchell uh, walk on the moon. Uh, he also has been exultant about the scene, the moon below. He's got an important job taking pictures of the landing sites of future Apollo missions, particularly Apollo 16. He's got trouble with his camera. Uh, they've got to get some pictures back of that Apollo 16 landing site because they don't have good enough ones yet. And uh, that's the second most important part of this whole mission. Uh, so they're holding their, uh, uh, keeping their fingers crossed in, uh, in Houston while they wait for those pictures to come back from the moon to be sure they've got good ones of the Apollo 16 landing site. Apollo Command Module pilots worked harder than the public ever realized, particularly when they were flying solo around the moon, fully occupied with their own flight plans. Stuart Rusa was no exception. Observing and taking photos of potential future landing sites, conducting experiments, and troubleshooting malfunctioning equipment. He also had to take requests for more details from geologists who, upon hearing about a particular discovery, would ask him for further observation and clarification. Saturday, February 6, 1226 a.m. Houston time. Five days, nine hours, 53 minutes elapsed time. Stu Rusa hadn't slept well, but when Kitty Hawk came around from the far side of the moon on his 14th revolution alone, he lied about it and told Capcom Ron Evans he had gotten six hours of good sleep. In fact, he had a fraction of that, and none of it was good but he didn't want anyone on the ground to worry about it. And thanks to a steady flow of adrenaline, he felt well. But as he brought Kitty Hawk's systems back up for another day, Rusa took a deep breath. Yesterday had been long. Today would be even longer. His solo voyage was turning out to be a 41-hour fire drill. Gazing down at the moon from 69 miles above, Rusa wished he could take an orbit or two to do nothing but look at it. But his mission, the first intensive program of scientific observation in lunar orbit, was far too demanding for that. It was largely the mission Ken Mattingly was meant to carry out. Like him, 
Rusa had spent much of the past 19 months working with geologists. Each of his assigned craters was a geologic world unto itself, with its own peculiar features, its own riddles. His solo book, crammed with photographic tasks, was as demanding as the one Mattingly had prepared for Apollo 13. On top of all this, he had the work of a command module pilot, landmark tracking, maintaining the systems, firing the SPS engine to adjust his orbit. It was a grueling workload, and time seemed to be slipping through his fingers, mostly because the single most important piece of gear for his geologic reconnaissance, an automatic large-format camera called the Hikon, had conked out. The Hikon was a huge device. The lens alone was as big as the 18-inch hatch window. It had a motorized film transport and exposure controls and its own timer. With it, Rusa had planned to take photographs that would show features less than seven feet across. Just hours after he, Shepard, and Mitchell arrived in lunar orbit, Rusa unpacked the Hikon and mounted it at the hatch window. It breezed through about 140 frames, then it began making a distressing clack-clack-clack noise until he turned it off. Since then, he'd spent much of his time troubleshooting. But the Hikon camera continued to malfunction, and Stu struggled to repair it by himself. He bantered back and forth with Capcom Ron Evans, and later Gordon Fullerton and Ken Mattingly, about suggested solutions. Simulations were tried on similar equipment on Earth in an effort to emulate the problem and find a solution, to no avail. Attempted troubleshooting by Rusa overlapped into a time period when the command module pilot was supposed to eat, so he ate chicken salad, which did not require any preparation time. Ultimately, ready-to-eat items would make up most of his diet for the duration of his solo time around the moon. Stu said he didn't have time nor the inclination to try to mix any hot foods with water. He preferred open-and-served food, and he enjoyed the Thai food the most. Rusa was too busy to notice his isolation most of the time. The exceptions came after sunset, as Kitty Hawk drifted silently through the realm of earthlight. The cabin cooled slightly, just a few degrees at first, but that was enough that the environmental control system could not remove all the moisture in the air. Then the spacecraft went out of the radio contact and into total, unyielding darkness. He liked the solitude, but he couldn't deny a feeling of loneliness. His only company was the stars that filled the sky, except where the moon blotted out even those distant companions. While Rusa worked, the air turned clammy, and suddenly it seemed he could feel the darkness. He knew in that moment, that he was utterly alone. After nearly a half hour of this, longer than most previous missions, because the landing site was well to the west and most of the near side was in sunlight, something remarkable happened. In a finger snap, the cabin was flooded with sunlight, 
and it was such a glorious feeling of renewal, even rebirth, that Rusa thought to himself, You know, we're really not creatures of darkness. Rusa also realized where he was and felt great and small at the same time. It was the moon that made him feel big. He had made it all the way out there. And it was the sight of earth, now for Rusa an object of undeniable wonder and nostalgia, that made him feel small. Only once, near the end of the first day alone, did Rusa have a brief respite from his flight plan. It happened after the last experiment of the day, which called for him to take pictures of the earth-lit part of the moon using high-speed film. When the time came on his eighth solo orbit, he pointed Kitty Hawk straight at the moon and turned out all the cabin lights. Mounted in his rendezvous window was the Hasselblad camera. All was silent except for the soft whine of the cabin fans, which he had long ago tuned out, and the steady click-click-click of a timer telling him when to snap pictures. Below, shadows of morning lengthened as Kitty Hawk drifted westward, making the oceans of storm jagged and forbidding. Every ridge, hollow, and pinhole was sharp. One large crater straddled the Terminator, half of its rim in brilliant sunlight and half lost in the night. Even as Kitty Hawk crossed into blackness, he kept firing off the pictures. After a few moments, his eyes adapted to the darkness and the moon reappeared, bathed in soft blue light. He photographed the earth-lit surface for several minutes, and then the experiment was over, and his flight plan for the day was finished. No more experiments. Just grab a bite to eat, take care of some housekeeping, and go to bed. But for now, Rusa let Kitty Hawk drift its windows pointed at the moon, and allowed himself the luxury of just looking. Not a single light glowed within the command module. Rusa floated in total darkness except for the windows in the front of his face, which framed a strange and eerie tableau of craters, plains, and ridges rendered in soft tones of bluish gray. His eyes registered remarkable details, Now he began to see shadows cast by the earth as deep as space itself. As Kitty Hawk coasted westward while the earth sank progressively lower in the moon's sky, the shadows lengthened and the moonscape became a maze of strange patterns of blackness and blue-gray land. As Kitty Hawk approached the realm of total darkness, Rusa saw a jumble of shapes that played tricks on his vision. Like a child looking under the bed with a flashlight, he saw the dragons of his own imagination. It was a spooky, marvelous encounter with something unknown, in himself as well as in the moon. Then Kitty Hawk was engulfed in total darkness. Rusa turned up the cabin lights and began his last chores before closing up the command module for the night. There were no moments like that on the second day alone. From the time he woke up and plunged into the troubleshooting on the Hikon once more, he was on the run. 
he realized he had put more into that solo book than he could possibly accomplish and that he had nobody to blame but himself. Before the flight, he couldn't say no to the scientist who suggested another crater to photograph. He was here for them. His time in lunar orbit was so precious that he couldn't bear to see any of it wasted, but too much of it had gone to troubleshooting the Hikon. Around 5 a.m., Mission Control decided to abandon the Hikon camera altogether. Ultimately, the huge, expensive Hikon would never fly on another Apollo mission. But the damage was done. Stu was already way behind schedule. Instead of the Hikon, Russo would end up taking 250mm and 500mm photographs using handheld cameras as well as movies of lunar lighting phenomena. The movies were actually scheduled experiments. Capcom would stay in constant contact during photo sessions, monitoring Russo's progress and dispensing reminders of specific procedures that needed to be done. One very important lunar surface area Stu was supposed to survey was the Descartes Formation, also in the Lunar Highlands. This area was under serious consideration as a future landing site for Apollo 16. With the Hikon down, Russo would have to step in and use a Hasselblad with a 500mm lens to take detailed photos of the potential landing site. If Rusa did nothing else, he had to return to Earth with pictures of the Descartes. That would be good enough to plan a lunar landing. To keep the landing site in the field of view of the telephoto lens, Rusa would have to turn Kitty Hawk precisely as he sped past, firing off pictures at the same time. So much confidence had been placed in the Hikon that Rusa had not practiced this contingency procedure very often, but it would have to work. Rusa would later report that Descartes was an extremely easy landing site to find, with the two bright craters leading right into it. There was no way one could miss it. Rusa would also say that he could see Antares sitting on the lunar surface, recalling later that he had no trouble identifying the area, saying, quote, I was looking on my map at these coordinates, and they were wrong. They had the lunar module over on the other side of the triplet crater. Then I saw the bright spot, the reflection of the lunar module and the shadow. There is no mistaking the limb when you see that long shadow coming out from it. I had a real good track on the lunar module, end quote. Stu also proclaimed that he had spotted the Alcep sitting approximately 750 feet from Antares. He recounted, quote, This time the shadow of the lunar module was down, but I knew exactly where to look. I saw the sun shining off the lunar module and also off the Alcep package. I marked down the coordinates of the ALSEP and phoned those down to Ron Evans. It looked to me like the ALSEP was right out there by this crater. End quote. Every now and then, as he pressed on, Rusa got word of his crewmates on the surface 
and their own efforts on behalf of the geologist. But he felt no envy. They had their mission and he had his. He wondered if they were having an easier time than he was. Did they say anything about the terrain, Ron? Rusa asked Evans as Shepard and Mitchell prepared for their first EVA. It seemed like I heard them say they were on something like an eight-degree roll angle or something. Yeah, that's right, Evans replied, and it's a little rougher than they thought it was going to be down there. Back on the moon, at the end of their five-hour first moonwalk, dusty and tired, Shepard and Mitchell crawled back into the lunar module, took off their dirty boots, ripped water from a tube, emptied their urine bags, and crawled into their crisscross hammocks. Shepard on top, Mitchell beneath. But sleep was almost impossible. Shepard felt like he had no place to rest his head. Air hissed from the air conditioner. Mitchell kept raising the window shades to look outside. So like two kids camping out, they kept whispering to each other, Ed, are you awake? Yes, I'm awake. Do you feel like we're tipping over? Yeah. Because they had landed at an eight-degree angle, which really wrangled Mitchell quite a bit, both men felt as if the lunar module was leaning too far, maybe even sliding down the slope. In the light gravity, with a pull one-sixth that of Earth's, they feared that one false move would topple their only means of returning home. During their first fitful night, Shepard awoke once when he thought he felt the lunar module slipping. As he scrambled to get out of his hammock and look out the window, he fell on top of Mitchell, who was bunked below. Through the long night, actually a Friday afternoon back on Earth, each time they drifted toward sleep, they were awakened by the slightest sounds. The rustling of the paper-thin walls, the metallic pings of tiny particles hitting the lunar module, the slight change in pitch of the small onboard motor as an air conditioner pump kicked on. It was now that Mitchell felt the weight of being the only two living creatures on this dead world. For a few more hours, they tried to sleep without success. It didn't matter. They were so anxious to begin the second moonwalk they felt no exhaustion. So, they radioed Houston two hours early, saying they were ready for Cone Crater. Before we begin the second moonwalk, I want to offer a little lunar geology background information to gain a better understanding of the purpose of EVA number two. Samples of the moon had been in the hands of lunar scientists for 18 months now slowly giving up their secrets. Prior to Apollo 11, one researcher had stated that if so much as a single gram of lunar material were brought to Earth, the scientific understanding of the moon would increase one million-fold. Two lunar landings later, 122 pounds of rock and dust were inside the sample vault at the Lunar Receiving Laboratory and in laboratories around the world where the scientists were like children 
in an unending Christmas morning. Before the first lunar samples arrived, scientists were divided into two main camps in their predictions about the moon. Nobel laureate chemist Harold Urey believed the moon was a chunk of debris left over from the formation of the solar system. He subscribed to the impact origin of the moon's craters. Looking up at the dark maria, he envisioned collisions so violent that they created pools of molten rock which froze into smooth plains. Aside from the occasional new crater, Yuri believed the moon had remained cold and unchanged for four and a half billion years. Yuri and his followers were known as cold mooners. Other scientists, the hot mooners, believed that all lunar features from craters to mountains to maria had been formed by volcanic activity. Some even claimed to have spotted the glow of escaping volcanic gases through their telescopes. Both camps defended their positions with almost religious fervor. By the time of the first lunar landing, most geologists had taken positions somewhere between the two, envisioning a moon whose surface had been shaped both by impacts and volcanism. They had used telescopic observations and unmanned probe images to construct geologic maps of the moon and work out a rough sequence of lunar geologic history. But neither the geologists nor their astronomer colleagues had reached a consensus. On the biggest question, the moon's origin, three main theories vied for support. The fission theory stated that the moon had been torn from the infant earth. The capture theory held that it had formed in another part of the solar system and had later wandered into Earth's gravitational clutches. The co-accretion theory maintained that Earth and Moon had coalesced separately out of the same cloud of gas and dust. But until the samples arrived, these ideas could not be confirmed. On the eve of Apollo 11, one theorist who made his voice heard maintained that the Maria had once been real seas, full of water, not lava. But the rocks from Tranquility Base indicated otherwise. In the instant when a handful of geologists inside the Lunar Receiving Laboratory beheld a gray slab and recognized it as the volcanic rock called basalt, the cold mooners had lost. The Sea of Tranquility was a plain of congealed lava, and that meant the moon had once been geologically alive. Remarkably, lunar basalts resembled the Earth's in most respects. Under the microscope, their crystals of feldspar, pyroxene, and other familiar minerals looked just like their terrestrial counterparts. But there were some important differences. For one thing, they were pristine. Unlike earth rocks, they had never been subjected to wind or rain. In fact, not a trace of water showed up in the lunar samples, not even within their molecular structure. Nor was any organic material discovered. The geochemist probing revealed other discrepancies. 
Lunar basalt contained more titanium than Earth's, but less sodium and other volatile elements, a finding that raised immediate difficulties for advocates of the fission theory. The riddle of the moon's origin was not going to be solved after a single lunar landing. But there was basalt on the moon, and the importance of that discovery could not be overstated. On Earth, basalts are formed by partial melting within the mantle layer, whose rocks are rich in iron and magnesium. By inference, the moon was not a primitive body, but at some point had become hot enough for its interior to melt and separate into layers of differing composition, including a crust, a mantle like Earth's, and perhaps an iron-rich core. More than just a relic from the early solar system, the moon was a world with its own story to tell, if the scientists could be clever enough to decipher it. They took a giant step when geochemists assayed radioactive isotopes in the Apollo 11 rocks that indicated the samples were 3.65 billion years old. That age, which dated the epoch when the tranquility lavas erupted, was the first hard nail on which the geologists could hang their timeline of lunar history. Contrary to what Harold Urey believed, the Maria were not primordial. Geochemists had evidence from meteorites that the birth of the Earth and Moon had happened 4.6 billion years ago, nearly a full eon before the tranquility lavas poured forth. But some hot mooners had to face the surprising truth that the moon's volcanic activity took place far earlier than they had thought. The geologist had barely had time to probe the Apollo 11 rocks when Apollo 12's hall arrived. The mare basalts from the ocean of storms were a good 400 million years younger than those from Tranquility Base, confirming the geologist's belief that the Maria did not all form at the same time. That was consistent with geologists' theories about an era of mare volcanism that may have spanned a few billion years. The Apollo 12 samples also differed in composition from the Apollo 11 rocks and from one another. That implied that the source of the mare basalts, the lunar mantle, must also vary in composition from one part of the moon to another. Meanwhile, the dust of the moon was telling its own story. It bore the tracks of cosmic rays and was laden with subatomic particles from the sun for the astronomers and solar physicists to study. For the geologist, it sparkled with tiny beads of glass. Some of these, the geologists deducted, had formed by volcanic eruptions, possibly from deep within the moon. Others had likely sprayed out as molten droplets from the tremendous heat of meteorite impacts. In all, the lunar samples from these two landings would have been enough to keep scientists busy for years, but they were not enough. A glance at the full moon reveals that the Maria are surrounded by bright-colored highlands, otherwise known as terrae. 
whose composition was still almost totally unknown. The relatively smooth Maria had been the safest choice for the first landings, but after the success of Apollo 12's pinpoint landing, NASA was ready to send astronauts to the more difficult terrain of the lunar highlands. There, at a place called Framaro, Alan Shepard and Ed Mitchell were ending an uneasy night in the lunar module Antares and preparing for their second moonwalk. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 316 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 14, Solo Flight Over the Moon, and Lunar Geology. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. If you're looking for old episodes, the first 147 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on all podcatchers. Well, folks, I am sorry to report that we received no new contributions to fund the podcast over the past week. This is the first week of the year that we have gone without any new contributions, so it is very significant and a bit discouraging. The dog days of summer are taking a serious bite in this year's budget. I am so thankful we still have 231 of our Patreon donors to help carry us through this financial drought. Thank you for your continued support, and thanks to all of you who have contributed this year. If you are enjoying the content provided here, please consider supporting the podcast if you're financially able. To do so, head over to the website spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange Donate button to make a one-time contribution or the Patreon link to make small monthly contributions. All donors are rewarded in four ways. Contributors' names are added on the donors page at the level they choose to donate. There are also longevity emojis for multiple years of contributions and that is explained better on the donors page at spacerockethistory.com. Contributors also receive a thank you message from me. Contributors are recognized on the podcast, and contributors are automatically entered in the weekly giveaway. Okay, since I ran so long on the content this week, I will spare you my afterthoughts and send you directly over to Mrs. SRH for the weekly donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike, and hello, everyone. I am happy to announce this week's winner of the SRH logo magnet. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Andrew Mikowski. Andrew Mikowski, if you would email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell us your address, we will mail this out to you. Thank you to all 397 of you who have contributed thus far in 2019. My primary source for this week's episode was 
A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin. He had a great write-up. And my other sources were Light This Candle by Neil Thompson, Smoke Jumper, Moon Pilot by Willie Mosley, The Internet Archive, CBS News, Apollo 14 Surface Journal, and Wikipedia. Okay, folks, that's all we have for this week. I will try to have episode 317 posted by next Thursday. It could be a little late, but I think I'll make next Thursday. So long for now.